Hello, and welcome to episode number four of Crazy Money. Today, we've got a great conversation with Ron Lieber. Ron is the Your Money columnist from the New York Times. He also wrote a book called The Opposite of Spoiled, colon, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Ron and I talk about all kinds of stuff about whether or not you should tell your kids how much money you have, how much your house is worth, or all the dark secrets that you have hiding in your financial closet. We discuss whether or not I'm ever going to let go of the budgeting process in my house, whether I have the faith in myself and those around me to, to, to let go just a little bit. It's a great conversation. If you have kids especially, or if you were once a kid, I think you'll really find some of his insights to be quite meaningful and, and appropriate. Hey, you all, if you like what we're doing here at the Crazy Money Podcast, I sure would appreciate it if you went to iTunes or to Stitcher or wherever or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast and throw us a whole bunch of stars, however many you believe we deserve. Someday, I'll try to monetize your listening via mattress ads or something like that. But in the, in the meantime, I'll ask you to contribute via endorsement. Share this with a friend write a review on iTunes, and definitely subscribe so that you can automatically get the next episodes that are coming out. Oh, another thing you could do is maybe come out and see me tell some jokes sometime. I will be at Best of Atlanta on March 10th at the Laughing Skull Lounge in um, Atlanta, Georgia. I will also be headlining Caroline's on Broadway on March 13th. Boy, it would be fun to see you there. So come if you can. If you can't, tell your friends in New York City that your friend Paul is going to be performing right next to the M&M store at the legendary Caroline's on Broadway on March 13th. That is enough promotion. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ron Lieber. What are we willing to spend here? Is this a want or a need? And then always asking what I think is like the most cosmic question of, of life itself, right? Which is how much is enough? Yes, right. right. Yeah. How much is enough, right? How much birthday present is enough? How much concert festival is enough? How much time in the software industry is enough? Yes. How many pairs of uh, shiny new athletic shoes is enough? My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. I am here today with Ron Lieber, the Your Money columnist uh, for the New York Times and the author of the excellent book, The Opposite of Spoiled. Ron, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having me. Now, when you were a kid, did you dream of writing a personal finance column? I'm in New York, so it's finance. If we were in Atlanta, it'd be finance. By we, the way. we can't speak in Southern accents. We can speak whatever we want. We 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 speak in Midwestern Jewish accents. That's what, what, what is that accent? Are you going to just demonstrate it for me today? Oh, wait, I guess it depends on whether you're in the suburbs or the city. But I, I know some. <laughs> I know some of my favorite people are Midwestern Jews. Uh, there are Minneapolis Jews, though. Uh, uh, they have a different accent up there. Do they? By the way. Yeah. Oh, you betcha. Yeah. You betcha uh, we're going to Temple. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, when you were a kid, did you dream of writing about personal finance? I think as far as I got with that dream to the extent that it existed was the C plus I got in Economics 11 in, <laughs> in college. I have never worked so hard at anything and done so poorly. And it is a source of great amusement to my econ professor that I have ended up doing what I do. What was it about econ that baffled you? To, that Why'd you get a C in econ? I mean, you're a pretty sharp fella writing for the New York Times and whatnot. I had a kind of math block, uh, and it came from having grown up in an educational environment that was kind of non-traditional. Our, our math program, it probably doesn't even deserve to be. It's an insult to the word program to call our math program a math program. And I was just ill-equipped, like, equationally, you know, algorithmically to, right. to, to handle the math portion of the econ curriculum. Um, but I think the reason why I was ultimately good at personal finance was because I had this obsession from a relatively early age of beating the system, right? Of always outsmarting 
whatever it was that was in front of me, right? How was I going to get the journey tickets? What was the best place <laughs> to sit in Wrigley Field for the least amount of money? And how did that come to, how, how did you make that game happen? Well, it, some of it was a game of necessity, right? So when I was in middle school, my family's financial situation went off the rails a little bit and my parents split up. One of the parents didn't work for a while uh, because of a job loss and you know everything went nuts, right? So the, you know there was a fair bit of, um, making do with less. Uh, so some of it was out of necessity. But then, you know, it was a combination of just really enjoying getting to live better than other people for the same amount of money or even free. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the experience of having applied for financial aid in college and having gotten a lot of it and been able to negotiate for more. That felt great. Uh, I fell in love with the frequent flyer mile almost the, from the moment I started flying <laughs> regularly. That became an obsession of mine in the 1990s. Right. And eventually all of that added up to personal finance. It took a couple of editors to see it in me because I didn't see it in myself. What were you writing about before you were writing about personal finance and how did you find your way to this niche? It was a whole grab bag of stuff. So my first job in college, you know, my first internship was just like a standard local newspaper internship uh, at the Daily Hampshire Gazette in Northampton, Massachusetts. I worked sure, at, uh, that's a big one. Yeah, startup legal newspaper uh, when I got out of college. Um, but then I, I managed to get to the big leagues, albeit at the very bottom rung. I got hired as a reporter, essentially a fact checker at, at Fortune Magazine at Time Inc. I Which did, office were you in? I was in the Time and Life Building, 1271 Avenue of the Americas. Oh, cool. So, you know, the, the mothership. Uh, so that was really, you know, where you learned how things were done right. Uh, and you started at the bottom, you know, fact checking every word of older writers' work. And so it was in business journalism. And when I started traveling for work and when I started writing books and started doing speaking, uh, you know, my books weren't about business. I did a book about why it was a good idea to take a gap year between high school and college. I did a, a, a second book was about business. It was a collection of stories of people who started companies before they turned 30. Um, you know, all of that stuff uh, caused me to be on the road more, fell in love with the frequent flyer mile, thought I was going to write a book about that. Then 9-11 happened. Nobody wanted a book about oh, the boy, airline industry. Right. No. And I found myself at the Wall Street Journal. And they looked at the stuff that I'd done and they'd said, Ron, you know, what you don't understand is that your beat, or at least the stuff that you've shown us so far that you're proud of, your beat is beating the system. And if you come (laughs) here, we want you to do that. Right. And so I got to the journal and I was writing stories about how to return your wedding gifts for cash. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, How do you return your wedding guests for cash? It's a better, that's a (laughs) better solution. Yeah. Well, if you knock them off the wedding list, you don't have to pay for them anymore. Right. You need to have a break even formula for expected value of gift. Yeah. But by cost per person at the dinner table. You know the pay for your plate theory, right? What is that theory? It's if somebody comes to a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a sweet 16 and you know they want to give you a cash gift, but they don't decide how much to give you until they've arrived at the event to see how much you spent on it. Oh my goodness. And if you spend a lot, then they give more than they might otherwise. There are actually wow. people that operate according to that way of going through life. I do not. I went to my first bat mitzvah last year and I think I was glad I'd I chose the gift before I saw how much they were they spent. <laughs> the budget was unlimited and they exceeded it. Yeah, not everyone is like that, but maybe more than we'd care to admit. Yeah, no, it was it was a beautiful it was a beautiful event. So you so you came from an environment that was you you saw some economic not necessarily instability but ups and downs in your childhood, and in what way did you does that sort of inform the work that you do today? It's hard to know where the motivation comes from to try and do the right thing by getting the right information to the largest number of people. But there is no doubt that much of what I do is inspired by, you know, what I learned back in high school when somebody slipped us the phone number for this guy who was the guy to see in the Chicagoland area if you needed more money for college. And we went up to see this guy 
and he told us to bring him 50 bucks in cash, right? Uh, and he gave us this address in Evanston to show up at. And it turns out he was the assistant director of financial aid at Northwestern University. And he was running this side hustle where you'd come in and see him at night and you'd give him some money and he'd basically explain to you how to beat the financial aid system. Oh my system. gosh, that's $50 well spent. Yeah. So, right, the moral of that story was that um, there is always a grown up around who is ready to throw the rope back for somebody else if you can just find that person, right? Maybe it costs a little bit of money. Right. Maybe it doesn't. But when I arrived in for, in personal finance, I realized, wow, not only can I not pay for information, right? So nobody can ask me for information because you don't pay your sources in journalism. Mm -hmm. But if you work at places that people have heard of, pretty much everybody will pick up the phone unless they're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And now in the age of Google, they'll pick up the phone because they've done something wrong, because they know <laughs> that if they don't deal with you, you know their name's going to be in your story and it's going to be at the top of their Google search results from here to kingdom come, Sure, right? So I realized I, I could help the largest number of people by asking sometimes inconvenient questions on behalf of however many readers I could, you know, wrangle. And what was the secret to get good journey tickets in 1980? <laughs> what number what, what are we talking about? This was, you know, pre-StubHub, pre-internet. Uh, camp and, out at the Piggly Wiggly to get your tickets? And so I, I thought I could outsmart the system by, you know, taking a little piece of paper ripped off a a uh, flyer on a signpost and calling, you know, Gina and displays. And uh, that, didn't, that didn't work at all. Gina, Gina completely stiffed us. We did not end up with counterfeit tickets. Um, so yeah, what I learned from that experience was you really did pay uh, to wait in line at Ticketmaster. But mm -hmm. then I found out that we had a family friend who worked inside mm. of Ticketmaster. So when Springsteen came on the Born in the USA tour... I talked to her, and she hooked us up. Right. Um, so there was no Gina in displays. So there was no waiting out in line. And so, you know, sometimes it's who you know. And was Courtney Cox at the show that you actually saw? Did you see her <laughs> dance on stage? No. Uh, we were far enough from the stage not to be able to see who it was that was pulled up there. So, you know, I had some juice with the family friend, but not so much that we were, like, down on the field. Right. Okay, so the opposite of spoiled. What's the elevator pitch to the publisher for this book? The elevator pitch for The Opposite of Spoiled was that we all know that kids need to learn about money, but financial literacy is boring, and the science on it is inconclusive in terms of whether it works. And so what I was trying to explain through The Opposite of Spoiled is that there is a direct connection between talking about money and teaching kids values. And so while you may feel neutral or negative about talking about money, Everybody wants to have their kids to have good values. And it turns out that answering all of the insane questions that kids have about money give us an opportunity uh, to lead our family on these families on these years long um, conversations uh, towards rituals, even that directly imprint all the values that we want our kids to have. Right. So spending money is actually about modesty. Ultimately, it's about prudence or thrift even. Um, saving money is about patience. It's about delayed gratification, all good things, right? Giving money away, generosity, gratitude, all that good stuff. And hanging over all of it is curiosity about what you have and how your family got so lucky if it happens to have more than average. And maybe perspective on where you sit in the socioeconomic pecking mm -hmm. order and, and um, how it came to pass that some people have more and some people have less. And that's such an interesting one because there's so much discussion about inequality. And even within the most privileged classes, you see some kids that live a jet set lifestyle and some kids that are merely wealthy. I think you, you refer to it as the dignity gap when some kids have some things and others don't and they have to, your kids are out there fighting their own fight and they see kids with other things. How do you address that as a, as a parent? When some kid's got the North Face jacket and you're wearing a different brand. Yeah, it, it isn't easy. And I don't want to take credit for coining that term. It comes out of the sociological literature. But it is absolutely true that if you are a parent and you're lucky enough to have more than average, you're going to be faced often on a, a daily basis um, with the opportunity to make deliberate decisions um, to give your kids less than you could. Right. And that doesn't always feel good for the kids. And it is what the sociologists refer to as a sort of a form of forced deprivation or artificial deprivation. And 
kids are going to ask for an explanation, right? They are generally, especially by the time they have, you know, two numbers in their age instead of one, smart enough and have enough context um, to know kind of about where they stand or what you can afford. And so they're going to ask a lot of tough questions about that. And they are entitled to answers. Mm -hmm. Um, All questions are good questions. Sometimes there's bad timing, Um, but but their questions are always appropriate in my book. And sometimes you're just going to have to say to them, part of my job here is to make um, spending and saving and giving decisions on behalf of our family, in opposition to the decisions that you might make as a child, precisely because it's important for you to learn some lessons about waiting for things. Um, And that there are some things that we are just never going to do or things that you're never going to have because we don't believe um, that that's something that a 10 or a 12 or 14 year old should do or that you in particular should be able to do right now. And that may not be satisfying, but at least it's an explanation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, our job, if there's two parents, our job is to make you a good person with good values. And sometimes having everything and getting to do everything does not lead to that. You, you came up with a, uh, maybe you coined this, maybe you didn't, but my favorite my favorite uh, concept that came out of your book is something called the land's end line. Can you tell me, can you walk us through what that is? I'm happy to take credit for this one. And I, <laughs> I promise, um, you know, I'm writing right now about influencers in the world of personal finance and how sometimes people get paid for the recommendations that they make and they don't disclose it. So let me just state right away that um, I've had no contact with Land's End about this. They haven't sent me any anoraks or whatever the other stuff was that <laughs> they make. Right, no parkas. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up in the, the, the Midwest, and, and that catalog came over the transom like clockwork. And I remember talking to the ladies in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, that you'd see in the commercials with the headsets, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I grew up on that. And, and to me, the, what Land's End is kind of a stand-in for any brand that delivers... Uh, you know, high quality, mm-hmm. excellent customer service, decent value, right? It's not showy, but it's not cheap. Mm-hmm. It's sort of straight down the middle. You're right? not going to see lands in any rap videos anytime soon. No. Not um, blinged out at the club and my lands in duck boots or whatever. Yeah. And I also like that it's, it really is a Midwestern thing. Um, I now uh, have a, a, my, my current, you know, winter coat is a Land's End coat and it has a big honking Land's End little label on, on the, on the left breastplate. And I don't see anybody else wearing Land's End on the New York City subway. Right. And I feel kind of good about that. It's kind of a mark of my Midwestern uh, heritage. Anyway, so that just sets the context, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. some people don't even know what Land's Inn is, what it stands Land's for. Land's is kind of like an L.L. Bean, but it's... Yeah, it's right. L.L. Bean for the Midwest. It's very practical, in, uh, durable clothing that is not bad looking, but it's not super cutting edge fashionable. Right. Yeah. So we decided in our household that when there was something that our daughter thought that she wanted and perhaps even needed, Mm -hmm. we were going to place that thing on what we called the want-need continuum, right? So let's say that it's a pair of rubber rain boots, Mm -hmm. right? So you draw a horizontal line on a piece of paper turned sideways, and over on the left side, you've got need, and over on the right side, you've got want. And so what you have to decide in every category of spending as a parent, right, is how much is enough? Mm-hmm. How much rain boot is enough? How much underwear is enough? How much baseball glove, soccer cleat, musical instrument, you know, right. et, et cetera. Uh, and so in the rain boot category, over on the far left side, on the need side of the continuum, the sort of just enough rain boot is, you know, whatever it is that you'd get at Famous Footwear or Walmart or, you know, it's the kind of the generic no-name brand or the house brand that maybe costs 25 bucks for a kid. All the way over on the want side of the continuum, uh, the most expensive rain boot I've ever been able to find for a child in the United States is something called hunter boots. Sure. 
Um, and so you see those on a lot of uh, upper middle class and above, uh, you know, younger females. Some little boys wear them too. Has a big honking label that just says hunter. Tennis, but, tennis moms wear them. <laughs> right. I've uh, noticed. Yes. Um, but is, you know, otherwise just a plain rubber welly. But those can yes. cost 80, 90, 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we decided was that in the rain boot category and in many others, we would be willing to pay for the Land's End items or the Land's End rain boot or the Land's End coat or whatever it is. And you sort of draw that Land's End line vertically about halfway through the want need continuum uh, at 40 or 45 or 50 bucks for the rain boot. And then we said to our daughter, if you want uh, something that costs more, Mm -hmm. as long as it's not on the banned item list, right? So if you wanted a banned item list, a a plan, if you wanted a plaid Burberry rain boot, uh, that's not a brand that we're going to let, you know, an eight year old walk around in, right? But if you wanted the hunter boot, say, um, and we decided that was not on the banned item list, um, that that was not too extravagant of a something for you to wear on your feet. You could have that, but you were going to have to pay the extra money beyond what it would cost at Land's End. So, you know, the extra 40 or 50 bucks, that would have to come out of holiday money, birthday money, or allowance. And only then would we find out just how much you wanted it, right? How much do you want to be that far out on the on the want edge of the want-need continuum? Uh, and, you, and she would have to make a trade-off, right? right. And that's what grown-ups do. Every day we make trade-offs. So, you know, a big part of what we're doing here with uh, all this crazy charting and the questions and the exercises, it's, it's about adult making. Right. Right. And a big part of being an adult is learning to make those trade-offs and doing so safely. So you, you brought up allowance. Tell me what the right strategy should be. For, I have a nine-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter, and we'll get to them in a second. But tell me how I should be thinking about allowance and what it can do for them. So I generally get two questions right off the bat whenever I'm talking about allowance. The first one is starting when, and the second one is how much, right? So I think in terms of the when, um, the best time to start is when they start asking for stuff and mm-hmm. they are mathable enough to, to count, yes. right? So yes. that's usually around four, five, or six. Certainly by the time that the tooth fairy comes for the first time, if yours is a tooth fairy that brings money, mm-hmm. um, that's a good time to start because what will end up happening is that Right, the tooth fairy shows up, and now, you know, in Buckhead, right, the tooth fairy might bring a one hundred dollar bill. Um, no, in other parts of Atlanta, my wife maybe. would leave me if the tooth fairy gave a hundred dollar bill. Right. I have heard of tooth fairies who bring one hundred dollar bills. I'm glad that's not the case where you live. See note for the tooth fairy. Right. So the tooth fairy shows up with five dollars or ten bucks. Sure. That's often not enough for the kid to buy the thing that they really want. Mm-hmm. And they start to clue into the fact that they need more money. And if they're not getting allowance, some of them will actually try and pull their teeth Ooh. out. And I want to hire that kid in this whatever sales team I'm managing when they get old enough. Well, exactly. But if they if they do it wrong, then you're at the dentist and yeah. that costs more than ten dollars yes, and more than a hundred dollars. And it so does. maybe that's the time you start allowance, right? And you have them take their money and divide it roughly equally between three jars, mm-hmm. right? The same three jars that we grown-ups think about when we think about our own money. We've got a whole bunch of money that we spend each month. We've got, uh, you know, another pile of money, hopefully, that we're saving for a rainy day uh, or for retirement or for college or for whatever else. And then hopefully there's some money left over for people and causes and places that need it more than us. That's the give jar. Wait, you're supposed to plan what you do with your money every month? Uh, Yeah, it's, you know, it's uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes sometimes this exercise of setting up the three jars is in fact an opportunity for the grown-up or the grown-ups in the house to reckon with their own poor planning. Yes. Right? So three jars, spend. Teach it. Like, learn it, teach it, do it. Right? Or, yeah. It's definitely... <laughs> so so you, you actually have spend, save, give jars. We did this when I read your book a, few, a couple years ago. And it was a great exercise. Here's the problem is consistency and, I know. and doing it over and over and over again. Right. And making sure my son doesn't steal money out of my daughter's jars and making sure that the balances of the, of the spend bo- jar doesn't get um, augmented by the save jar and things like that. I, this is all grown-up stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we we steal from our own jars. The grown-ups sometimes steal from other people's jars. <laughs> yes. There are there are penalties for stealing, right? right? Uh, and you know, you you get the opportunity to um, to be the 
prison warden, the lawmaker, the prosecutor. Uh, I, you know, it's uh, but but these are all lessons that they should learn uh, while they're under the relative safety of your roof, as opposed to when they're out in the world and doing the wrong thing uh, financially, legal or otherwise, can have bad consequences. Right. Sure. So good that they're making those mistakes with you. So yeah. So so those are the three jars, and that's the when. In terms of the how much. You know, it's easier to figure it out when they're younger and they're not so independent. You know, a buck a year or a a buck a year per week for every year they've been alive, right, is is probably the right amount. So a six-year-old gets Mm -hmm. six bucks a month, divided equally between the jars, you're off and running. With the older ones, a lot's going to depend on what they're actually doing and spending out in the world. And if you want to make all of the stuff that they need part of the allowance, right? So there are a lot of parents who just turn over the whole clothing budget every July and build that into the allowance and the kids have to get the things they need and they do it that way. So in that case, the the allowance is more than you might expect, but there are no bailouts and that money has to be used for the clothing or the sports equipment or the music or whatever extracurricular stuff, right? So I don't know. Another way to think about it is this, right? The right amount is just enough so that they can get some of the things that they want, but not so much that they don't have to make a lot of really hard choices. Mm-hmm. Trade-offs, again, right? right? Because yeah. we're in the adult-making business. Um, so that's another way you might think about it. Yeah. It's more qualitative. What's the danger of not talking to your kids about Can I just ignore it? <laughs> can I just let my kid grow up without talking about money and avoiding all those awkward uh, times? Yeah, so I, I, I think there's something loving in the instinct that, you know what, can can I just protect them from all of this pecuniary stuff just a little bit longer, right? Like, why do they have to live in that world? It's so gross and icky and, uh, you know, the the grown-up or the grown-ups in the house have enough time dealing with it themselves um, without imposing it on the kids. I would argue that the opposite is true. By shielding them from the reality that money is important and money skills are important. You're setting them up for a situation where when it comes time, you know, to leave you to go to college, to go to the army, to go to the workforce, uh, and they have not been practicing this very important life skill for literally 10 or 15 years, they're going to make a ton of mistakes. Uh, and at that point, they're not going to be living under your roof most likely. And the consequences are going to be higher. Um, so that's, you know, that's the best answer on a practical basis. But on a more emotional one, I would just argue that, again, right, these conversations about what we spend and why and when we save and how we give and to whom, these aren't just money conversations. These are values conversations. And if you are a family that wants to stand for uh, modesty and not materialism, if you're a family that wants to stand for patience and delayed gratification and not a lack of discipline, is if you're a family that wants to stand for generosity and not selfishness, one of the best ways that you can teach those things is by using money as a tool. It's like a pivot point to talk about the way you see the world and to get them asking the right kinds of conversations. And you talk about charity being a great way to catalyze those conversations. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Um, So where to start here, right? Kids are born relatively generous. We know this just from observational studies where, you know, if you give a toddler a Cheerio, they'll mouth it for a little while and then take it out and then try and put it in your mouth, right? <laughs> thanks, thanks, baby. Yeah. No, no thanks. They, okay. they like to share, at least at first, but then they become... Uh, a little bit older and, you know, they start hitting their friends if their friends try to play with their toys, right? And so you want to begin to implant the idea that sharing actually feels good, um, not just with toys, but with other things too, with, with whatever it is that you have that's extra or that you've made a, a priority to give away. And kids, you know, around the age of three or four or five or six often have trouble seeing too far out side of, you know, whatever um, limited circles or communities they've been exposed to, right? And so using the give jar gives them an opportunity to think about the things that make their life rich. Who are the people in the community? What are the places they like to go? Are there people or other living beings that they see who who need help, who are suffering, right? Um, kids at Kids that younger are, are capable of stepping outside of themselves and thinking about the world that way if you give them the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so if they have a few dollars or more than a few dollars that's piled up uh, you know, in a large jar over time, it's actually empowering to have 
that money to give to to help a good cause. And what I found, because uh, people send me pictures of this now all the time, is that you know kids will take this you know full jar of of coins and bills, and they'll go walk into the you know development officer at the zoo or walk into the pastor's office at the church um, and hand that jar over. And it's the most amazing thing because you know kids don't come and do that very often. And you know they'll take pictures and they'll put them up on the zoo's Facebook page, and right. you know and the six year old feels amazing so you know it gives them an opportunity to and then it becomes a habit and then the development director asks them about putting the charity in their will <laughs> right yes. i want you to talk to my planned giving officer right um so how do you or, or the kid starts to get direct mail right the solicitation and then that yeah. list gets sold and pretty soon and then his identity right. is stolen and, right, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and it all starts with we that. can talk about freezing your kid's credit if we want to that's it yeah. um, <laughs> we'll get to that if we don't get kicked out of this conference room at uh, five o'clock you know, as I'm reading your book, you're talking about allowing children, not just allowing them, but encouraging them to take management of things like a clothing budget and a charity budget. And my spouse may have occasionally in the past thought that I'm a little bit of a control freak. And so the idea of even get, turning over that kind of responsibility to my children scares the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Do you start small and just hope they don't mess it up? Or like, how do you, or you, or you just go, you know what? They're going to make mistakes or they're not going to make mistakes. You just got to roll with it. Is that, is, is that part of being a parent? Just not holding on too tightly? I would push this through the prism of comedy, actually, if okay. I was you. Because yeah. um, the mistakes that they make will be hysterical <laughs> right. so much of the time. So I'll get material out of it. That would be worth whatever. I, I mean, uh, that's worth a hundred bucks. Another ten minutes. I, yeah, I, I mean, it's I, I, once you start looking for this in your own household or, yeah. or elsewhere, you'll see it everywhere, right? I was at my kid's school, and there was a uh, my kid's Quaker school, right? Extremely liberal. There was a picture on the wall of uh, that a first grader had made of um, somebody holding on to a pile of money, and underneath, in sort of pigeon script, he'd written, you know, with half the letters backwards. People do not want to pay their taxes. <laughs> right. And I thought, wow, this is amazing for a Quaker school. I called the kid's parents, and eventually they figured out um, that he had read a book about the Boston Tea Party, right? And that was how he decided to put his, you know, sort of anti-tax screed up on the wall of oh, the Quaker funny. school. It's amazing, right? Um, like you, probably uh, in, in in nearly every upper middle class community, there is a at least one emergency room doctor who's also a parent mm-hmm. who is on sort of um, insta text of everybody's phone. Sure. Where, so we have Doctor Dara um, in our neighborhood, and Doctor Dara's who you know you send the picture of the cut to Dr. Dar and she tells you whether you need to go to the ER or not. So one morning I woke up to a picture from Dr. Dar um, asking me to diagnose what had happened to her kid. And I was looking at the x-ray and I was looking at the x-ray and it was of a stomach and there was something in the stomach. Oh, no. And I thought, oh shit, her kid ate the money. Oh, wow. And I said, Dara, is that a coin? She said, you didn't Tell people in the book that if you start allowance too soon, your kids will eat the money. <laughs> oh, my God. How old was the child? The kid was four. Oh, wow. Um, so I felt a little <laughs> bad um, that I had not thought of that. Uh-huh. Um, so, But I, I think that's sort of the worst thing that can happen. Are gonna... And you laughed. Yes. It you was funny. Laugh. It was good. No, it's good. Yeah. No, it's. I just think that it, maybe that's part of the, the lesson that isn't even, you know, explicitly spelled out is like you can't control these kids' lives. And when they're gone at 18, it's over. That's not over, but it's like a lot of it's over, right? So practice letting go today and giving them the opportunity to make small mistakes before they go and make giant mistakes. Right. And again, you you can make rules. I mean, you may not be able to get to them before they take the quarter down the gullet, but <laughs> right. but at least as they get older. That's you, Darwinism, man. Yeah, That's, you can say, right? <laughs> you can say, these experiences are off limits to you. Uh, and these products are off limits to you. Uh, if I catch you, you know, wearing this or doing that, um, there isn't going to be any money for a while, mm-hmm. uh, or there'll be some other punishment that, that will hurt more than not having the money. Right. And, uh, you know, it's an opportunity for them to train and test and yes, to, to fail and, and for you to slowly, but surely take a step back and let go a little bit. Oh boy. That's, that makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Speaking of antics of children. A nine-year-old boy that I know, I'm not going to say what his name is or if he's related to me, mm-hmm. scammed an eight-year-old girl that I know. 
I know very well. <laughs> out of $15 for a stuffed animal that was worth approximately $3. Uh-huh. And I talked to each of them about it. And my daughter, I mean, this eight-year-old girl said, <laughs> but I don't care about money anyway. So the question is, which one of them should I be more worried about? <laughs> my daughter or my Madoffian son? Wow, that's a really good one. So one of the best words to use with kids is the one that they often use when they're younger to our great aggravation, which is why, right? So I would, I would, I would ask, I, I guess I would have, before I determined who I should be more worried about, or uh, I guess I, I, I would have asked your daughter, why, why do you feel that way? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why, is, why do you feel like money's not important? Because you know, there are certain kids, particularly younger ones, who just don't want all that much, which is great and also perfectly normal. Sometimes parents worry if their kids like hoard a bunch of money. Sure, it's totally fine. And I've never heard, um, you know, from the parent of a fourteen-year-old that has that problem. And so, you know, they eventually grow out of it and they want things, and we all want things, and that's cool, right? But I would ask the the nine-year-old, you know, why, why do you think money's not important? Because that's actually objectively untrue. Mm-hmm. Right, yes. Mo- money is important. Yes. So she's got it wrong, right? So- something's something's some something interesting and maybe problematic has happened that makes her think that way. Right? Um, maybe you don't want to destroy her innocence immediately in one fell swoop. But but where where does that come from, right? Because in the very least, hopefully by the age of nine or eight, she's got a give jar and she knows that there is power in giving and in yes. helping, right? So money is important, at least in that limited sense. So where is she getting that idea? That's a good... And why is one of the questions that... you? It's not a delay tactic. It's an opportunity to explore a child's curiosity about money further. Mm-hmm. Like if... You know, one of the questions I had for you was... Should I tell my children how much money our family has? And what I believe, if I'm interpreting the book correctly, what you would say is, if they ask you how much money you have, the proper response is, why would you like to know? Exactly. I, I'm I'm not crazy about your tone. Let's practice your tone with that. Okay. <laughs> let's, okay. let's try it. Why don't you say All that? Right, just, <clears throat> yeah. Um, that's a good question, honey. Why Why would you like to know? Excellent. Hang on. I think like, take three. Um why would you like to why would you like to know why would you like to know mm, that no. last one wasn't oh, as good man. the right. second and third ones are pretty good alright people at home practice look in the rearview mirror not while you're driving ask yourself that question yeah I mean I think you want it to be like half delight right okay. you, you actually because part of the part of the idea here is to convey the idea that we value their curiosity yes there's yes. nothing dirty or shameful about asking about money there is uh, about how I got the money but not about <laughs> but not about their curiosity <laughs> we don't have to go there no no it was all above board I swear right it was it was before the Russians were involved right? <laughs> hey no no that's not what I meant not what I meant I love you Mark uh, um <laughs> So, uh, so yeah. Why do you ask? Right, it's sort of fifty percent, fifty percent delight and approval that they've had the guts to to raise their voice and ask the question, and and fifty percent kind of genuine curiosity right. about why they're asking this, you know, interesting question. Now, some of it is is in fact a stalling tactic because. Yes. You're rehearsing in your head. Okay, how am I going to handle this? Right? What did Ron say in the book? About what to do here again? <laughs> Quick, right? did I save his phone number? Um, but but there could be any number of reasons why they're asking these questions, and um, maybe it's because they are genuinely worried about their own financial circumstances because they overheard you on the phone having a conversation that uh, they thought meant that you were out of money, or yes. maybe you're fighting with your spouse and they think there's something wrong. You're about to get divorced, or right. You know, maybe they just got completely the wrong idea, um, uh, you know, about your financial situation. Or, or maybe there's something, there actually is something genuinely difficult going on and they've picked up on it and you've been trying to hide it from them yes. um, or any number of other things, right? And so if you can sat, if you can get to the root of the question, uh, quite often they're, they're asking something different, right? And And knowing how much your house is worth or how much money you make or how much money you have is not actually going to satisfy their curiosity. Um, maybe, especially with the younger ones, right? They they don't have the math skills or they don't have the context to know what a five-figure income or a six-figure income or a $500,000 house, what that actually means in right. context. 
But you do say that with the older kids, they're going to find out anyway, especially about real estate through Zillow and stuff like that. So you might as well have that conversation with them as soon as you think they're prepared to kind of go with it, right? Yeah, it was amazing to me. So I, I spoke at Zillow a year and a half oh, how ago. Fun. And I, they... Uh, Thanks for ruining it, guys. So, yeah, it's, it's, there were like a couple hundred people there, and they claimed to have no idea the kids yeah. were looking up the, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the first thing the kids do is type their address into Google, right? right. Yeah, oh, sure. That's interesting. Sure. They are responsible for so many difficult conversations. Thanks for your transparency, Zillow. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we had a good conversation there about that. Yeah, they're going to figure that out. Um, eventually, they are going to listen in on your phone conversations. They may read your paper mail. They may look over your phone uh, over your shoulder at your phone they may bust into your laptop uh, you know when when my family situation uh, became uncertain financially and I could not quite pick up on the reality on the ground I went diving through the file returns and I oh, read wow. the tax returns mm. and I could not make heads or tails of them but I know I'm not the only kid who does that right so they have a variety of ways of figuring this out sometimes people's salaries are a matter of public record too Mm -hmm. so yeah sooner or later they're gonna ask about it and i would argue that they're actually entitled to the information it's Mm -hmm. information we should give them by the time certainly they're a senior in high school if they're preparing to go off and do something else away from you they ought to know what it takes financially to provide whatever um, quality of life that they experience in that moment because uh, it'll help them know what they need to do for themselves and what sort of career choices might be necessary if they want to continue to live in that way. And if they find the way that you live completely ridiculous and totally ostentatious, then they know that they can earn half of that and probably still be happy. Yeah. What lesson from your book do you have the hardest time following yourself? The hardest thing is logistical follow-through. So people often ask me, gosh, you know, I'm so sick of these jars and, yeah. and the singles and the fives. <laughs> right, and, right, yeah. you know, I, I tried to be a, a good example to uh, the world when I started working on this book. And I actually joined the credit union upstairs in my office building just so I could always go up and break a 20 without people looking at me cross-eyed like the corner right. deli asking yeah. for change, right? I tried that today at Walgreens. It didn't go over too well. <laughs> yeah. And so um, by the time you know kids are 10 and 12 or 11 or 15 or whatever, people are ready to move to electronic forms of counting and tracking. And, and that's all fine. And we were ready to do that in my household um, five or six months ago. And I just haven't finished setting up the freaking, you know, debit card, electronic transfer allowance thing just because I, I find that stuff tedious. And now I'm embarrassed every time my daughter asks for money because uh, it's taken me a couple months to, like, you know, get the actual prepaid debit card system set up. And so uh, I totally feel for people who are trying to do this times two kids or times three. And, uh, you know, it just takes some discipline to set up the system um, so that it, it can, you know, run uh, more or less hands-free. But um, I, I think the other thing that I, I missed about what it's like to have older kids is that, you know, almost every month or certainly every season, there's going to be new expenditure that you've got to make a decision about that, you know, okay, is this something that comes out of allowance or is this sort of, is this a one-off? And that's fine, right? Every system gets tested and stretched uh, as long as you're always stopping and pressing the pause button and having a conversation. Okay, what, what are we willing to spend here? Is this a want or a need? And then always asking what I think is like the most cosmic question of, of life itself, right? Which is how much is enough? Yes, right. right. Yeah. How much is enough, right? How much birthday present is enough? How much concert festival is enough? How much time in the software industry is enough? Yes. How many pairs of uh, shiny new athletics shoes is enough? How many different colors of felt from my microphone. Hey, I did that. You've got a fresh one so that you didn't have to breathe somebody else's germs. Uh No, I think there's, that is a cosmic question. It is like, it's the, it's, it's one of the biggest questions any of us Mm -hmm. can answer for ourselves. And one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast is because I found myself in a place having made more money than I ever dreamed of where I'm not sure if I stopped too early or stopped too late, you know, like, it, it's like it's great to have it's great to have these assets, but what do you do with them? 
how do you raise your kids in a way that helps them be the best person they can be? You know, I worry, I, I came from a background of um, middle class, upper, maybe slightly upper middle class. And what I wanted to do was to work hard so that I could avoid the financial stress that I thought I was picking up from my parents. And that was a bit of a fallacy of its own. I mean, I certainly have worked hard and, and done well, but we have more than I've dreamed of. But we still have financial stress. There's always the question of, well, couldn't should we fly first class? Mm-hmm. Can we fly private once? <laughs> well, yeah, you try try any drug once, and depending <laughs> upon how addictive it is, maybe it's a problem, maybe it's not. So these are the questions I'm really, really interested in. And, and in your book, I thought, was just an excellent exercise. And I mean, you're kind of just compiling all these great lessons from all these people all over the country to share best knowledge. And I thought it was a really interesting exercise that that gave us a framework for some questions we didn't even know we were going to have as parents. Thank you. And again, to my mind, you know, the answer is always a question, right? Again, how much is enough? Uh, to which you can almost always answer, well, you know, enough uh, so that we have at least some of what we want, but not so much that we don't have to stop and think, including the kids, uh, each and every day about what sort of choices we're making and and whether we have everything that we need. So there should be trade-offs both in terms of making sure they don't have so much that they have to at least feel like there is an opportunity cost for every purchase. Mm-hmm. If I buy the jeans, I'm not going to get the shoes. If I buy the shoes, I'm not going to get the concert tickets. And that teaches them how to make choices and what scarcity feels like. Yes. It's Marginal, the imp- not... It's, horrible scarcity, but like some degree of scarcity. It's the imposition of a certain degree of scarcity. Um, because, I, I mean, unless you're going to stake them to, you know, some sort of allowance as young adults or an early inheritance, um, which even if you're among the tiny percentage of people who can afford to do that is often, uh, can be a mistake if, if you want, um, you know, children to experience independence and self-sufficiency right. and, and the good that can come with that. Right, that sort of artificial scarcity is actually healthy, right? And it mm-hmm. teaches them to make good choices and to build good habits. I we've done, you know, our wills and stuff like that, and and even if we both get blown out in a plane accident, my children will not see any money until they're fifty four years old and demonstrate an appreciation for early REM records. <laughs> Those, but like I said, I'm not controlling. I'm not controlling. Right. Um, if if there is a fight about money in your house, what catalyzes it? I'm trying to remember the last time we had an argument about money in our household. I can't really think of it. I'm trying to think now about I mean the you know the the 13-year-old has some things that she would like to have, would like mm-hmm. to buy, things that she wants, not things that she needs. But I think at this point, she almost knows better living in our house and my house in particular. There's a framework at the very least. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, at this point, she just sort of rolls her eyes at me. And uh, and so she 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 almost knows better than to ask. So I, we actually, we, I can't think of a money fight that we've had in a good long while. I mean, again, I'm like... I play Dr. Money in the newspaper for sure. the New York Times and my spouse is, you know, smart but but not all that interested in this stuff and is, you know, relatively trusting. And so a, a lot of the minutia is mostly, you know, sort of mine to deal with. Mm-hmm. And maybe because we chose one another well, we're generally falling you know, in the same general place on the want-need continuum right. in terms of what we want to get for ourselves. Um, and, you know, we've mostly agreed that we're going to spend lavishly on education and live in an apartment that's smaller than we would like. And those are the two main things that we spend money on, and we're in agreement on that. So, so. if you made twice as much money as you make, would you buy a bigger place? Or w- let me ask a better question, a more open question. What would you spend the money on? I mean, we're lucky enough to be in a situation where we have almost all of the things, uh, where we have everything that we need and almost all of the things that we want. And the things that we would sort of like to have, you know, like a second home are that we can't afford right now, 
are, are things that at the end of the day, when it came right down to it, we just wouldn't want to deal with. Yes. We're so bandwidth constrained right now because you know we both are newspaper journalists. We both write books. We both give speeches. We have a toddler and a teenager. Um, my dad is dying. Uh, you know, we're we're just uh, we're out of our heads, right? We don't. You don't to... feel like decorating someplace in the Hamptons right now. Is that what you're well, telling me? We wouldn't. We we wouldn't. That's not Fire what, Island, that's... Stratton, wherever, <laughs> right? Woodstock. I don't. I don't want to impose my values on you. Truro, Massachusetts. If you have to ask. Okay. But, um, uh, is the, that the, the Berkshire? Second to last. Uh, it's the last town before Provincetown on Cape Cod. But, you know, getting there it takes five or six hours. It's not a weekend trip. And, right. uh, you know, we, we don't, you know, and we only have so much vacation time, right? So it's, I think we, I, we'd want to be more charitable. I mean, that, that's what we'd spend money on. Um, you know, there are all sorts of places that threw the rope back for me uh, that I've tried to be generous with. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much more than we can do. And, and my wife feels the same way. There's been a lot written about the financial independence retire early movement. And given your area of expertise, I'd really like to know what you make of it. Fire, the fire movement. I don't doubt that it's possible for some people who have the the diligence um, and the desire to do without so many things that I find great about life, you know, can, can find their way in 20 years, even perhaps with a kid or even two Mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, they can live off the interest in the dividends uh, by the time they're 40 or 45. Um, I just question whether all of these people are really going to be happy without a full-time job for half a century of years on the planet. Right. I think work gives us purpose in a way that we don't always recognize until we're not doing it full time anymore. And for some people, getting away from that uh, can be great, particularly if they find um, volunteer work uh, that moves them, um, or you know, the, the being a parent full time moves them. But even that, as your kid gets older, right? There's just only so much to do. So I wonder whether psychologically those people are going to be as happy long term as they think they are. And I also think just the amount of ink that's been spilled over the movement is way out of proportion to the number of people that are actually ultimately going to have the discipline to pull this off Mm -hmm. and are not going to be disrupted by job loss, health mess, aging parent, sick kid, very expensive, um, you know, special needs, whatever. Sure. Uh, I, I just, you know, this, this, as mainstream as it seems, given all that we have read about it, uh, I, I don't think the reality is going to be that there are incredibly large numbers of people who get to do this. Right. That would be my opinion as well. There's a lot of talk about I mean, I think it's great. Financial independence is a very worthy, absolutely yeah. underappreciated mm-hmm. part of how to live a life that you control. But this retire early, having done it myself, it's not as good as you think it's going to be. And number two, it's pretty damn dangerous to try to pull off when you're 36 and you don't, you know, you say you're going to live for the rest of your life on $40,000 a year. That's, that's a tough one to pull. I don't buy it's it. Hard. I yeah. don't buy it. Okay. True or false? Because my kids are affluent, they will have no ambition. False. You know, drive and ambition is, is sometimes um, genetic. Uh, it can certainly be nurtured. And if you set up a situation for yourself and for them where they are not handed everything on a silver platter and they, in fact, have more chores uh, than any other kid in the neighborhood and they've got to do them for free and they have a below average allowance and you make them work for all of their spending money in college and you don't hand them anything at the age of 22 or 27 or 32 uh, I see no reason why they would not have as much as a- ambition as you know somebody with uh, half the money of affl- an affluent family or one tenth of the money of an affluent family. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the biggest challenges is is kind of having the ability to give them whatever they want and holding back and making sure that they do know that scarcity that you were talking about. And that's not easy. And and you know and 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 it's um it's got to be reinforced too right because the older they get and the the more aware they probably eventually become of whatever it is the family has you know you've got to make clear to them if if this is the case right that you know you're not getting any of this for a good long while right 
And I, we, if there's two of you, we intend to live into the three digits. In fact, we're going to take all of our money and spend it on life-enhancing, life-extending <laughs> medical technology and personal training. And we're going to be here until we are 108. Right. Uh, and so if there's some inheritance that happens there and we don't spend it all or give it away before then or you know, spend it on your children, right. Uh, you know, maybe there'll be some left, but you'll already be retired by then. So <laughs> you better be working and you better be saving. That's right. And you better start listening to Murmur from them. <laughs> okay. So the next book, you're, you want to talk about, can we talk about the next book for just sure. a second? So you're writing a book about the cost of college. It, this seems to be out of control. Like, where does the cost of college stop growing at this rate? How does it start plateauing? I think there's a lot of people who think that the most selective schools in America are underpriced. Mm. If you ask those institutions, they will remind you that on a, a per-student basis, they're actually spending more than what they're charging the full payers. Uh, so, you know, everybody's getting a subsidy at these more expensive schools uh, because there's money being thrown off from the endowment. So, and, in, you know, in terms of the, the value that college can deliver for some people, the life-changing experience... The friendships, the marriages, the uh, career connections, uh, you could make a decent case that it's underpriced, right? So I, I don't know that uh, it will necessarily plateau. I'm, I'm expecting it to be six figures per year by the time certainly my three-year-old gets there. Wow. So why are you taking this on, this project? Because I started to get an increasing number of calls as I kind of aged into the cohort where uh, contemporaries of mine were starting to send their kids to college. And people were kind of waking up to the reality of how things had just gone bananas since, uh, you know, since I went through it uh, 25 or 30 years ago. And all of a sudden, you know, the flagship state university had, had crossed the six-figure mark for four years. You know, it costs about $100,000, sometimes as much as $130,000 all in to send uh, a kid to uh, your flagship in-state university for four years now. And that's assuming they get through in four, which a lot of them don't, mm -hmm. right? So, and then you go looking at uh, the list prices for, um, you know, the top 50, 75 most selective uh, private schools and universities in the country. And those are now topping $300,000 for four years. That's insane. Uh, yeah. Now that's before any discounts. Um, right. But, you know, for better or for worse here at the New York Times and out in, you know, nonfiction hardcover book, book land, you know, your customers tend to be roughly in the $150,000, $200,000 household income range. So you're not going to get a lot of need-based aid, need-based financial aid from colleges there. So, and, 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 you know, when you're starting with a, a kid who's three or maybe a kid who's three and a kid who's six, you have no predictability on what kind of age you're going to get 12 years later. So you got to kind of plan as if you're going to be paying full price. Mm -hmm. And then people get to the end, right? Maybe they earn just enough so that they don't get much need-based aid. And they end up in a situation, right, where you've got a kid who gets into the University of Georgia or you've got a kid who gets into... SUNY Binghamton, you've got a kid who gets into the University of Colorado, right? And then maybe they also get into Emory, or they also get into Ithaca, or they also get into Colorado College. And those schools are $200,000 more, right? So they started coming to me and they said, Ron, I, nobody told me, right, that this was a six-figure thing over here at the state university, and it's a six-figure thing at the private college, and there's $200,000 between those things. And I know we live in the era of big data now, right? So can you just point me to the data set that explains why Emory is $200,000 better than UGA, right? Right. Yeah. right. Why, why Colorado College is $200,000 better than Boulder? Mm -hmm. I, I went to those... I went to small schools, right? I, I might be willing to pay that. I just just want some proof here, right? Yeah. And it turns out there's no data about this at all, right? Really? So we are all literally flying by and making decisions on the basis of snobbery, guilt, and other completely unhelpful emotions. So I'm trying to bring some sense to this and explain to readers who pays what and why, how the discounting system such that it exists now um, became unrecognizable and utterly opaque, and when, if ever, it makes sense to pay sometimes as much as a quarter of a million dollars extra above and beyond uh, what you might spend if your kid goes to community college for a couple of years and then transfers to the flagship state university. And where are you finding the data to, to make those analyses? Well, I'm trying to break it down. I'm trying to come up with a list of hypotheses of, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 things that people might think 
are worth paying extra for, mm-hmm. right? You might be willing to pay extra for really great teachers that are um, demonstrably committed to undergraduate instruction. You might right. be willing yeah. to pay for a really great career center. You might be willing to pay for a climbing wall and a lazy a lazy river. river in the student right? aquatic center. Right. And uh, so, how much extra are you really paying for that, and what does that buy you? Uh, you know, and sort of on and on and on. And so, if you if you go through those things, you start to get to some science um, and, and some data about. Uh, what makes an experience better or worse. And right. that allows you to ask really pointed questions. It doesn't, you know, create an instant algorithm that tells you how much more you should be willing to pay for one place than the other, but it right. helps you ask some good questions. Yeah. Well, that is really, uh, and it hasn't been on my radar yet, but it will be soon as a parent. And it just, it, I shudder to think at the, I mean, we've been blessed a million times, you know, so it's not that big of a, it's kind of like, well, the money's there, so we're going to spend it. That's what you save your money for. But is that money well spent? You know, is that, and, and it's kind of like buying, I buy healthcare on the exchange now, and I'm paying like $25,000 a year in premiums. And how does a guy or, or woman who's making $90,000 a year pay their premiums for their healthcare? How in the world can they do that and then pay for even an in-state college for their kid? I mean, it's it's quite literally not possible uh, to to you know put even a couple thousand dollars away in that instance. Almost certainly, it's nuts. Uh, yeah. It's nuts. Oh, most importantly, did you ever read the Keith Richards autobiography? It's it's in the audiobook queue now. Is it? Mm-hmm. It's so good. Yeah, it's so great. It starts off great and it doesn't let up. Mm-hmm. Hey, Ron, thank you very much for doing this. I greatly appreciate your time. I think the work you do is important, and I appreciate thank you. you doing it. I appreciate you having me on. So that was my interview with Ron Lieber. I really enjoyed it. Very interesting guy doing a lot of interesting, insightful work. There's a link to his book, The Opposite of Spoiled, in the show notes. Click through, buy it on Amazon. It'll be worth your while, if you, especially if you have kids of almost any age. Hey, if you like what we're doing here, I really would appreciate it if you went to your podcast provider and endorsed Crazy Money by giving, giving us a good rating especially if you can take a time to write just a couple of words in a review. That would be very meaningful and certainly subscribe to it so when future episodes come along, you'll be the first to know. Like next week's episode with Anna David, the author of Party Girl, a New York Times bestseller. Very, very interesting artistic entrepreneur. We had a great conversation in her bungalow in Hollywood, which was super hip and totally cool. And I enjoyed talking to her. It'll be another fun conversation. Oh, hey, you know what I did? After talking to Ron, I went out and I bought me uh, a robe on Land's Inn, a terry cloth robe. Darn it, it's comfortable. Not that I'm going to get any money for for endorsing them, but uh, I sure did uh, sure did like buying something that costs like forty bucks for a very solid, high value product. And every time I put it on, I get to think of Ron Lieber, the New York Times Your Money columnist. Ron, I don't know if that's creepy. I hope it's not too creepy. Anyway, hope you all have a great day. Take care of yourself. Bye bye.